Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Today marks 80 years since the Allied raid on the German-occupied French port of Dieppe. Canadians made up the great majority of Allied forces involved. Nearly 5,000 of the 6,100 troops were Canadians. The remaining troops consisted of approximately 1,000 British commandos and 50 American rangers, and they were all supported by eight Allied destroyers and 74 Allied air squadrons. And actually, those Americans who were attached to the Canadians and the British, well, they were the first of any American troops who would see ground combat in Europe. And their first experience would be to witness the disaster at Dieppe. I'm your host, James Rogers, and with all this in mind, I asked an old friend of the podcast, Canadian military historian, television presenter, writer, and veteran of the Royal Highland Regiment, Professor David O'Keefe, onto the podcast. David is not only an old friend of the Warfare Pod, but his perspectives help us cast light on Canadian actions at Dieppe and the secret reason why it all took place. Now, if you are passionate about Second World War history, then you can now watch my latest documentary on the incredible history of HMS Belfast, one of the world's most iconic ships, which is now free to access on the History Hit YouTube channel. And of course, while you're clicking through the internet, spare a second to drop us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, as it helps us to get out there to everyone who loves history and keeps me and the team bringing you this podcast twice a week, every week. But now here is the ever-fantastic David O'Keefe on Dieppe. Enjoy. Hi, David. Welcome back to the Warfare Podcast. You are our resident Dieppe expert. How are you doing? Well, thank you very much. Yes, I guess uh, I guess there aren't too many of us. So, yeah, thanks for having me back. In your research, you kind of keep us at the cutting edge of this. You show us that the history of Dieppe is still to be told because there's so many interesting factors that you're finding in your research, going through those archives, going through the papers, the correspondence that are revealing these hidden aspects of Dieppe. Now, we've done episodes on this in the past, specifically about the fact that this may well have been a uh, a capture, a grab raid for an Enigma machine. Specifically, if I remember correctly, a four-rotor Enigma. Is that correct? Absolutely correct, yes. Oh. And anything to do with it. Not just the machine itself, but all the ancillary documents. That was really the key. 
And this is because we had what the Allies had worked out bits of the earlier version of the Enigma machine, but now we needed to get a new Enigma to work out the new codes. Well, speaking of cutting edge, I'm glad you got in touch with me because there's a whole bunch of new research that's coming out, which is absolutely fascinating. And maybe this takes us off a little bit, but it does get us back to DM. When I first started researching this, the standard narrative that we always had was, yes, the British for many months before had been able to break into the three-rotor enigma. And of course, you know, that was 150 million, million, million to one odds, and they were able to do it. Alan Turing was absolutely wonderful. But it came as a result of what we call pinches, right? The idea of capturing material that would speed up the process. So basically cheats. But what we didn't know until recently was that the four-rotor, which was introduced or became operational on U-boats in the Atlantic on the 1st of February, 1942, the British had knowledge of it as early as the beginning of 1941. And this is fascinating because it brings up a whole new question over what did they know, when did they know about it, and why didn't they do anything about it? And so the fascinating part was when they were attempting to capture material off a German U-boat that had floundered, they went down looking for three-rotor material and ended up finding instructions for a four-rotor version. And this was in May of 1941. So in May of 1941, they knew that a new beast existed. And then they suddenly did their calculations and they ended up getting serial numbers. So they had been working on this for a while. And I was always confused because after they had broken into the three-rotor enigma in the spring and, uh, of 1941, I was wondering why they were still so aggressive on their pinch operations. In other words, they already had it. Why are you pushing the envelope? Well, as it turns out, the four-rotor was making its appearance kind of like a virus that was about to spread. And they were out trying desperately to get their hands on anything to do with it, starting in the summer of 1941. So by the time we get to Dieppe, we have about a full year, just over a year of failed attempts to pinch anything to do with the four rotor. So this was not a sudden occurrence in the summer of 1942. The British knew they were coming and uh, they hadn't gone operational yet, but they were discovering that U-boats and then, of course, uh, surface vessels in Norway and surface vessels in the Channel had been outfitted with the machine. But of course, this is done in piecemeal fashion. So it would they'd have to wait until everybody had it before they started using it as such. But what it does is it changes our narrative. We always thought it was February 1942 when suddenly the British discovered that this thing either existed or was implemented. But in reality, it's May of 1941. So that changes our understanding dramatically. And let's think about the implications of that. Because the moment that those four rotors are turned on, then this is effectively sending the Allies deaf to what the Germans are doing. So this is, by the time we get to the summer of 1942 and we start to talk about Dieppe, then there's surely panic in the minds of the Allies. There is, and I think that's precisely what it is. I mean, I've been trying to figure out now why they didn't do anything, but I think it's a question of exhaustion. In other words, we have put so much blood and treasure getting into the three-rotor, and then suddenly when they have this massive success... <laughs> Like, what do you mean a four-rotor exists? Oh, God, no, please don't bring it in. So part of it, I think, is willfully sticking their head into the sand and just hoping that this thing does not materialize. And even in January of 1940, when the, you know, Dieppe, not the Dieppe's on the table, but when they're looking at the possibility of these four-rotors becoming operational, 
they're saying that the pinch now is going to be the only hope because they have spent so much time building three rotor bombs, as they call B-O-M-B-E's. These are the electrical mechanical machines that try to unlock the encipherment. They don't have any four rotors available. So now they're realizing it's going to take 18 months until we can actually create one, let alone get it into production, get it in service. And it was only in the summer of 43 where they actually came in. So the default setting then becomes pinch, 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 and pinch. The only way you're going to be able to survive this in a Band-Aid way is to get your hands on captured material. So this then completely changes the complexion of the various raids that we had seen before. You know, the two raids up in Norway, even something like St. Nazaire now has to be re-examined dramatically in light of all this. So it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating what the cutting edge of research will tell us. Well, this brings us into this 80th anniversary year of the Dieppe raid. I mean, it's uh, it's a remarkable moment to start to reconsider this history with the research that you're doing. But take us through to the, the broader history of this. Give us a bit of a, a background of what Dieppe was traditionally seen as, as being about, because Enigma was one part of it, right? Well, it was, and that was one part that we didn't know about until about 10 years ago. And that's what my research revealed. Before that, it was known, well, on the day it happened and the few days after it happened, it was not known as the great disaster that it would become known as. And that's largely because, of course, when you're putting on operations like this, combined operations under Lord Louis Mountbatten can certainly control the narrative. And that's exactly what they were doing. And they were prepared before they went in. In other words, if it's the wild success, we have story A. If it's a mediocre success, B. If it's a defeat, C. And if it's a complete massacre, D. So as a result, at first, you know, the headlines were all about this great raid on the, you know, on the coast of France. Enemy held, you know, coast of France is raided by largely Canadian and British and some American troops. And then suddenly when the casualty, you know, casualty telegram started coming home, everybody very quickly realized that this was a disaster. And out of 6,000 men that went across, a thousand were killed and about another 2,500 to 3,000 were taken prisoner. So you're talking about a 67% casualty rate in a one-day butcher and bolt raid. That has to be on the highest levels that you'll see for the entirety of the war, right? Oh, it is. I mean, we're talking casualty levels like the Somme or Passchendaele in World War One. I. I mean, essentially microcosm. And so that's really what we're seeing. And it was shocking because now suddenly people want answers. What was this all about? So part of the predetermined narrative was to fob this off as basically a test of the German defenses or perhaps a PR stunt aiding the Russians. You know, the Russians were now in tight in the fall of 1942. So it all, all these became convenient ex post facto pegs to hang it on. In reality, none of those are supported anywhere in the documents whatsoever. So what is victory meant to look like, David? Because, you know, what I've heard is this is about testing the defences. Can the Allies take a a bastion? Can they take a port along the Atlantic wall? Is this something that's possible? But what does victory really look like for the Allies here? Well, victory, whether disaster or victory, it would have looked the same. In other words, those lines would have been promoted, largely because what they were doing or what they were doing was they were trying to pinch something that was considered to be ultra secret. And when I say ultra secret, I mean literally above top secret, the ultra secret classification, which meant there was no way that they could actually give away what they were there for. 
So as a result, all these lines were promoted. So it would have been the same, I believe, had it been success or failure. However, when you have such a large butcher's bill that came with this one, more probing questions are being asked. If it was a simple victory and they got away with it and casualties were low, I don't think anybody would have ever picked at it. We may consider Dieppe to be the greatest raid of all time, with all apologies to St. Nazaire, had it all worked. But we still would not have known, I argue, until you know, 60, 70 years later, what the actual engine was, which is fascinating when you think about it. But politically, this sounds like it could be quite troublesome for the Allies, because this is a bloodbath by any standard. It is specifically a bloodbath for your people, the Canadians, the brave Canadians. (laughs) My people, yes. And so I'm thinking here, to what extent did the Canadians know what was going on? The Americans know what was going on? Is this something that was purely in the minds of Mountbatten? Is this something that the British pioneered, led and failed at? And what were the repercussions of this? Oh, boy. Okay, now you've... Massive question. I've opened Um, it up. I've opened it up. Oh, have you ever? (laughs) Yes, Pandora's box has been opened. Okay. Well, first of all, you know, the necessity at this time was without a doubt on the table. I believe when it comes to the Canadians, those who were involved, like, for instance, Ham Roberts, the commander, the Canadian commander who was responsible for calling the shots on shore, certainly knew what they were after. You can see it in his planning. You can see it in his briefings. You can see it once now we know what they were after. You can actually see it in how the operation was planned, the contingencies that were put in, and how all those contingencies were actually executed on the day, and how over half of the fatalities and half of the casualties were taken in direct pursuit of those objectives, which is absolutely fascinating. So in this case, without a doubt, Ham Roberts, likely his chief of staff, church men, knew They wouldn't have known about Bletchley Park. You didn't need to. This is need to know. So all they needed to know was what you were after is located here, and it is extremely important to the war effort, and you will do whatever it takes to get it. They don't need to know what Alan Turing is doing back at Bletchley Park with it. That's not what the military does, right? The military is sent out. Here's your objective. Go get your objective. And generally speaking, we see that stovepiping throughout. So in other words, you will only be told enough to get your immediate job done. So the men who are landing on Blue Beach who have to get up and get up the the cliffs and across the cliffs and seize the German guns that are controlling the entrance and exit to the Epp Harbor, all they know is we got to do this because there's a ship called HMS Locust, which is going to come barreling down. We don't know what they're there for, but we have to open the way. So as a result, you can see that kind of stovepiping. And it's like that on the political level as well. The Canadians were never supposed to be involved in Dieppe, which is fascinating. When the outline plan was drawn up at the tail end of March 1942, the beginning of April 1942, Lord Louis Mountbatten wanted this operation conducted by the Royal Marine Division. First of all, they were his boys and he could trust them. And also they were on the chopping block when it came to bureaucratic maneuverings that were going on. So he was hoping to keep their tail alive and he wanted it carried out. But the Canadians who had been in England since 1940 on defensive duties were squawking quite loud for action. 
I mean, they had developed a pretty good reputation at the end of World War I as the, quote, shock army of the British Empire. And so far in the first two years, the land component had done nothing except stand on guard in England. So there was increasing pressure, not only from the Prime Minister of Canada, Mackenzie King, but also down through the Canadian Chiefs of Staff and right down to Andrew McNaughton, who commanded the Canadian Army, and his assistant, Harry Creer. So they started putting pressure political pressure. And eventually, Churchill acquiesced. And basically, the Canadians hoisted themselves on Operation Rudder. And so what Mountbatten did was begrudgingly, he was forced to accept them. And, you know, it's not like they were, you know, coming out of nowhere. The Canadians have been training for amphibious operations as well. They were just, they've been doing that for about the last year. But he did not want the engine of the operation, the pinch, to necessarily fall directly into the hands of the Canadians. Now, we're not sure why, whether it was a nationalistic thing, whether it was a bureaucratic thing. So he maintained the rump, a core rump of the operation, and left it in the hands of the Royal Marine Commando. So they were the ones specifically, and I I use an analogy, and I will have to use American football for this. The running back for the team would be the Royal Marines. And the offensive line are the Canadians. So in other words, they're not going to get to their, you know, he's not going to be able to score a touchdown unless the offensive line is going to be able to block and open up holes and get them through. So that's kind of in concept what they're looking at. But the Royal Marines, are their plan is listed in the outline plan. There was two stages. There was an outline plan, which went to the chiefs of staff, and then it was approved. And then the force commanders who were three of them, an Air Force commander, a Naval commander, and a land commander, then did the detailed planning. So basically, the pinch was in right from the outline planning stage, and then the force commanders were forced to build this up around. So now, because of the role that the Canadians have assumed in this as the offensive line, they need to know And so as a result, the Canadian units, which are going to be directly cooperating with the Royal Marines, are brought into this as well. So you have the tanks, the Calgary tanks, the Essex Scottish Regiment, the Royal Regiment of Canada. You also have the Fusilier Montréal and you have the engineers, the Royal Canadian engineers, who are all going to be cooperating with the Royal Marine commandos to get them in. So infiltrate them in create an exfiltration plan and get them out, which is absolutely fascinating. I mean, I've always argued that this is probably the true origin of special operations that we know today. This wasn't just about a bunch of commandos getting ashore and banging about and making a racket and leaving. There was very much of a target there with a pipeline to get in and a pipeline to get the stuff out, which is amazing. It's something we never knew. Move over Rome, move over Greece. This month on The Ancients, we're heading to the Americas. North, Mezzo and South. Join us every Sunday this August as we explore this area of the world's extraordinary distant past with leading experts. From the rise and fall of Teotihuacan to the mysterious Nazca Lines. A journey through the ancient Americas every Sunday this August on The Ancients from History Hit. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. But the resistance is so much harder than the Allies had prepared for. I mean, as you start to move through this port setting, this harbour, you know, it, it is relentless in terms of the fierce defence that is put in place and the highly trained soldiers they come up against. So how close do they get to the touchdown, if we're going to continue that analogy? Yeah, yeah, that analogy. How, how close do they get? I'd say they got to the one-yard line. I mean, that's how close they actually did come, and they certainly tried. So, for instance, go back to American football. You know, it's four downs, unlike <laughs> Canadian, which is three. They had four downs and basically they ran the ball all four times and failed to get into the end zone, but they got stopped on the one yard line. I mean, that's really what happens. And you're right. Taking on any port in this fashion, even though Dieppe is not considered to be a heavily defended port, it was defended heavily enough. And you're right. Skilled troops. This is 1942. Germany is at the height of its power and even its quote, second rate troops are still pretty damn good especially when they've been sitting there for two years, they have the entire area taped. They don't even have to call in, you know, six numbers on a grid square to be able to get artillery to come in. They've narrowed it down to two. They're on home field. They know exactly how to play this and they do, but Mountbatten wasn't completely blind in this. They knew that they'd be up against a a tougher nut. They expected that they could take heavy casualties, but I don't think they ever expected to take as heavy as they did. There's a difference between getting a black eye and getting decapitated. There's a big difference. And so there's a series of branches and sequels, as the British love to call contingencies, branches and sequels that come into this. There's four of them. All four are executed on the day. There's massive cooperation with over half of the entire raiding force involved directly in this pursuit. So they know what they're doing. They know what they're going for. But of course, as we know, no plan ever survives first contact, of course. And there's a lot of cutting that's going on. As I mentioned before, Dieppe is one of the last, and I would argue the last because they proposed other ones, but I don't know if any ever went in, other pinch raids. But for almost 18 months now, 
They've been launching raids. And even though they have had limited success in getting their hands on what they want, casualties have been minimal. So there's a growing victory disease. There's an increasing drift. Corners are being cut in the planning, particularly at combined operations after Mountbatten takes over. I mean, he is empire building. There's no doubt about it. And the ability to, at this point, combined operations is the only offensive force available in the British Empire to actually physically go and get the material you need. Because you're not advancing in the desert, right? We're not advancing in Europe. So the only way you can take it into the enemy and capture the material you need is through combined operations. This is something that Mountbatten realizes is his ticket to fame and fortune. In other words, creating combined operations or turning them into the ultimate delivery vehicle for any kind of pinch operation, whether it be signals, intelligence, or anything else. So he is extremely ambitious. And this is where I argue the seeds of disaster for Dieppe lie, that this increasing victory disease, the lack of attention to detail, even the first naval force commander, Admiral Bailey Groman, basically says, look, I'm out of here. <laughs> like, you know, there's no proper appreciation being done. There's no joint appreciation here. Like this is going to end in disaster. And Mountbatten gets rid of him and replaces him with the lead planner, uh, John Hughes Hallett. And John Hughes Hallett then takes them in. So there's a lot of elements, a lot of things at play here. And part of it is we've put these on. We haven't taken heavy casualties. What could possibly go wrong now? Sounds like a bad omen to change the commander at the last minute there, David. Well, and when we yeah. come into this, you talk about, you know, there's a lack of appreciation for the joint elements. Do you mean yeah. that there really isn't proper consideration of that combined arms movement? There isn't the Absolutely ability right. to tie these forces together in terms of their synchronized landing. So you have the tanks at the right time as the infantry, you have the support that you need to move through, because that's the only way that it's going to work. Yeah, well, you do to a degree. But really, what you have is, you know, the RAF is involved, they have their own sites. Yes, we're going to go and provide cover, but we're hoping the Luftwaffe comes out to play. And therefore, we're going to score a big attritional victory. You have the Navy, who obviously is interested in pinching because they're fighting the Battle of the Atlantic and they're not doing well at this point. So they definitely want to pinch. Also, too, they want to be able to see if they can sneak a 250 vessel raiding force across the English Channel. And they do. The one big success, I would argue, on a really horrible day would be that, that they actually did it. And then, of course, you have the Canadian Army, who is dying to get into operation, no pun intended. And you also have the Royal Marines who are trying to stay off the chopping block. So you've got all these things coming together, but they're almost working in silos. And that was the criticism with Bailey Groman. In other words, yes, we're all doing our individual appreciations, but nobody has sat down with the entire orchestra to figure out if everybody is actually on the right key. You know, we're, we all sound great in our own rooms, but how is it all going to work? And that does not appear to be sufficiently addressed between when Operation Rudder is planned and when eventually it goes in in August as Operation Jubilee. They're really, it's sort of pushed, it's hurried, they get it on, they get it done, and it turns out to be a disaster. But it's an extremely intricate operation, and that's the problem with it all. So it also sounds like some of the perils of classic inter-service rivalry are happening here. All the things that hamper military operations, the competition between those different elements of the Allied Armed Forces, and then add into that mix the fact you've got loads of different nations trying to achieve their own political point scoring. 
then you might start having the grounds for a bit of a disaster. But these are decisions made more at a, a political level and at a command level. Take us down into the actual fighting itself. Now, we said that the Canadians here have been pushed forward by their own political representatives to really have a dog in the fight. What was that fighting like on the ground, on the beaches, working their way up into the harbour? Well, essentially, for most of the beaches, and there were five main landing beaches, and then, of course, you have two outer flanks, which were handled by British Army commandos, and they had relative success, the Army commandos did on each flank, but then it was absolutely disaster for the entire Canadian division and even the Royal Marines. So as much as I hate to bring in Hollywood, the opening of Saving Private Ryan would pretty much apply. I mean, we are talking about massive casualties. Most of the men were gunned down just as they got off the landing craft, tried to get up over the beach and then over the promenade and into the city, if there were two main beaches. On the flanks, a little place outside called Port Ville, which was known as Green Beach, there was limited success. The South Saskatchewan Regiment and the Cameron Highlanders of Canada were able to make it slightly inland, but they were screw-ups. Landing craft put the South Saskatchewan's on the wrong side of a bridge, and they had to take the bridge, and there was bottleneck after bottleneck, so they never achieved their objective, which was to capture the western headland. And then on the east, the Royal Regiment of Canada and one company of the Black Watch of Canada landed at a place called Blue Beach, which is a tiny little socket called uh, Pui. And they were absolutely massacred as soon as they got off. They were supposed to come in in the darkness or just as daylight was about to break. They were late. They ended up following the wrong guide ship in. And they realized when they were heading towards the harbor, they were supposed to be actually five miles to the flank. So they ended up arriving 15 minutes late in broad daylight. And by that time, the Germans were waiting. And so as a result, three waves of the Royal Regiment were essentially wiped out getting out of their landing craft. Each one of the Canadian battalions that landed suffered anywhere between 75 and 94% casualties. I mean, we're talking about one of the, you know, like I said earlier, Passchendaele and the Somme kind of numbers. So the fighting was extremely intense. Germans had machine guns, they could bring in mortars, they could bring in artillery, and they had, you know, small arms fire. Um, not a lot of Germans on the ground, but you didn't need it because they were in either in bunkers or prepared positions. And like I mentioned before, they had the entire area taped. Their communications were top notch. They were able to call in artillery and mortars almost at will. They were extremely flexible. Ammunition was sufficient to be able to continue to fight. And, you know, before you know it, a couple of hours in and the entire raid was over. They, you know, they slammed the shore about 5 a.m. and by 10 a.m. it was done. And this is how it was meant to work for the Germans. When you put those defences up, they're meant to protect these ports, these harbours, and to work in a, a Widerstands nest, coordinated fashion to, to hold off the advancing enemy. So, I mean, it's only when you start to have that really spread out across the coast that it becomes far weaker as a static defence. But when it comes to Dieppe, that's how it's meant to work. And that's how it works with a devastating fashion and truly horrific consequences. So what's the fallout of all of this? Because I, 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 would, I would think Canadian politicians would not want to push their troops to be going in into risky situations again. But as we know, as we move through the war, the Canadians are often the vanguard of all of this. So what are the repercussions? Well, culturally, I've, I've always argued that this point in World War II, actually more 1944 than 42, 
But there's still this throwback to the idea of, you know, bloodying one's nose and sacrificing like we saw in World War I. And there's still that hangover. But there, we're at a pivot point where we're starting to change. We're starting to move away from the idea of, you know, valiantly laying our lives down to, no, we want to save as many lives as possible, get the objective, but we want to do it in a cost-efficient manner, as opposed to taking pride in the fact that we got the objective and we did it as bloodily as possible. In other words, that the butcher's bill was quite high. So culturally, we're starting to change. And, but it takes a while. And so what the Canadians and the British do is they basically start turning this into a sacrificial raid. In other words, that nobody has died in vain. There was a purpose for this operation, but the purposes were sort of thrown out there. They were rather vague. We were supporting the Russians. We were testing defenses. We were there to learn lessons. And that just never really sat with people. You know, people were, you know, like, okay, that seems to be a a very steep price to pay for something that just doesn't add up. So that was one of the problems. And of course, the fact that, you know, the ultra secret, although we talk about it now, and it's been known for about 40 years, it wasn't out of the bag until the late 1970s. So you have 30 years of security. And of course, you know, people who had sworn that they would maintain that and they did. So when the reports were written at the time, when the newspaper accounts came out, there was no mention, obviously, of any of this. And most of the, or almost all of the principles, by the time the ultra secret was revealed in the mid to late 1970s, were dead. And even then, it wasn't just a carte blanche to talk about it. Because even this in this day and age, when you talk about intelligence, one thing that will get anybody's back up in the intelligence world is when you start discussing sources and methods. And so as a result, if you are to talk about Dieppe in terms of the ultra secret, then you are revealing the existence of a pinch policy, which we didn't know about, the fact that they put on operations like this as cover for what they're doing. And these operations are still, or were still, and I believe they probably still are effective right now. You know, so that's the touchy point. Well, Dieppe as a failure, a truly horrific failure that has gone down in history as that narrative. And we can be dismissive of this idea of, of lessons learned. But is, is there any purchase in that? Is there anything in it? Is it not fair to say that, you know, if anything, the Allies learn not to try and take one of these reinforced ports and that it starts to, to lay the grounds for planning for D-Day and the success of D-Day? Is that not something we can tangibly hold on to as at least a, a silver lining to this terrible sacrifice? I guess you can argue there are silver linings. I mean, I, certainly we need a new, we need a recalibration. There's no doubt about it, about the narrative. But I think you have to be very conscious of the fact that the concept of lessons learned was not in the intent of the operation. Now, you and I are sitting down and we're doing this today, and I'm sure we are both learning lessons about how to do this and put these things together. But that's not the reason why you and I are doing this. We're doing it to talk about Diet. But we will, without a doubt, learn lessons as we go. So if you keep that framework in mind, then yes, without a doubt, there are always lessons you're going to draw from anything. And one of them I mentioned earlier was the fact that they could sneak a 250-vessel raiding force across the channel in the middle of the night and surprise the Germans, which was remarkable. But you also have to remember that the architecture of this operation, it is a one-day butcher and bolt raid with no logistical tail, no ability to set up shop onshore, maintain, you know, set up a bridgehead, maintain a bridgehead, et cetera. 
I feel it's a bit of a stretch to then draw a direct line to something like Normandy, which you have 150,000 men coming ashore and you have a massive tail and you have a pipeline under the sea and you have artificial ports that are being floated across. This is very much what Churchill said. It was a one-day butcher and bolt operation. So you have to you know, maintain or understand the architecture and not get it confused. If you want to talk about real lessons learned for Normandy, then you have to look at Sicily, Italy, the Pacific, Madagascar even at this point. But not Dieppe. Dieppe was, um, it's like taking a ladder into an F1 race. You know what I mean? It's just, it's a vehicle, but it's not going to get you to where you want to go. They're just well, different. They're different beasts. Well, maybe I'm, I'm just too much of an optimist here. And well, I, although I'd happily talk about Operation Husky until the cows come home, because you're absolutely sure. right when it comes to invading Europe and trying to take back and take on the Axis forces, and that's the lessons that you start to look at. Well, yeah. David, on this 80th anniversary, you've really helped us to put Dieppe into its proper historical context and dispelled some of those myths around the raid, despite how much I've tried to force you into conceding that there may well have been a glimmer of hope. So tell us, where can people read more about this and learn more about the new true history of Dieppe? Well, as a matter of fact, there is a paperback or a softcover version of the second edition of my book, One Day in August. The first edition came out about nine years ago. And in the interim, there were massive declassifications by GCHQ. So I was able to tap into those and cobble out a second edition. It's available everywhere. Amazon, bookstores, anywhere you want. And it's uh, One Day in August. And I believe the new subtitle is uh, Ian Fleming Enigma and the Deadly Dieppe Raid. So that's the new one, one day in August. Perfect. David, thank you so much. And as you know, you are always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. 
And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland, further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.